You're listening to an IOE podcast. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to shape our everyday lives. for the real world. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Eathway and I'm a senior research fellow in the Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities at IOE, UCL's Faculty of Education and Society. In this season of Research for the Real World, we're exploring ways in which socially relevant research can be translated into policy and practice by our IOE researchers, contributing to tackling challenges at a global scale. So on this episode, I'm delighted to be talking to Dr. Joe Van Hervagen. Joe is an Associate Professor in Psychology and Human Development, and as well as working in the Centre for Educational Policy and Equalising Opportunities. She has a broad academic background in psychology, educational neuroscience, linguistics and education. And as a result, her research is also very interdisciplinary in the aim to tackle some complex and fascinating topics on child development and learning. Joe is awarded the Margaret Donaldson Award from the British Psychological Society in 2020. In recognition of her outstanding contributions to the field of developmental psychology and continues to do impactful work funded by the Nuffield Foundation, the British Academy and the Williams Syndrome Foundation, to name a few. Overall, Jo is committed to gaining a better understanding of the complexity of development to improve educational outcomes for all, particularly those for children with special educational needs. So hi Jo, welcome to the podcast. Your work sounds really interesting and impactful for all children. But before we delve into that, it'd be great to hear about how you got involved in psychology and education. Oh, thank you, Laura, for having me. Well, so I started off with a degree in linguistics. And then during my final year, I was asked to write a little bit about Williams syndrome in an essay. And as I was reading a lot of these articles that were published by all these professors, especially Professor Annette Carmel of Smith was a name that came, came up again and again. And I really became fascinated around special educational needs, children who've got learning difficulties, who may not be learning language in the same way that typically developing children do. And then, as you may know, Laura, I'm from Belgium originally, so I was studying at the University of Antwerp. And in Belgium, there was a society starting to support children with Williams syndrome. And I was bold enough to email them and say, hi, I'm a student. I would love to meet some people with Williams syndrome, can I come around to your uh, barbecue that you're doing as part of this foundation that you're starting? And as I arrived there, I was met by this um, six-year-old boy, Thomas, who said, hi, I'm Thomas. Who are you? I said, I'm Joe. And he said, hmm, you must be my dad's secretary then. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm a student. But I was so bowled over by this little boy's confidence, the language he was using. And it was so different from what I had read in the articles that People with Williams syndrome have lots of language difficulties, learning difficulties, etc. And that kind of spurred me on to do some further studying. And so I did a master's in psycholinguistics and actually got the opportunity to do a placement here in London with the late Professor Annette Carmel of Smith. And so that's kind of where my journey for more 
knowledge around children, how they learn, develop. I mean, Annette was obviously an amazing developmental psychologist and an amazing mentor. And that's kind of, she then spurred me on to do a PhD and and really start thinking about complexity and development in psychology. Thanks, Joe. So you work a lot with children with Williams syndrome, as well as other neurodevelopmental disorders. Could you tell us a little bit more about what Williams syndrome actually is and how it may differ from some of these other disorders such as Down syndrome? Yeah, of course. So Williams syndrome is a genetic disorder. It's quite rare. So it occurs one in 18,000 life births, which means that in the UK, there's probably between 6,000 to 7,000 individuals who have Williams syndrome. And individuals with Williams syndrome are similar to individuals with Down syndrome, another genetic disorder that is much more common, in the fact that both individuals with Williams syndrome and individuals with Down syndrome often have mild to moderate learning difficulties. However, when we look at their cognitive profiles, we see that they're very different. So, for example, individuals with Williams syndrome have quite good language abilities and short-term memory abilities. Whereas individuals with Down syndrome, for, for them, these are areas of difficulties. So they tend to have difficulties with language production and with short-term memory. And then again, if we look at individuals with Williams syndrome, what we see is that they're quite poor in terms of visuospatial abilities. So the ability to relate objects to each other or to relate yourself to where you are in space, for example, as well as difficulties with attention. And again, when we then look at individuals with Down syndrome, we find that actually their visuospatial abilities, they're quite good. So what that allows me to do in my research is to kind of look at by comparing these different developmental groups that have overall similar learning difficulties, if you look at their overall IQ scores, for example, but to kind of see like what happens if there are certain aspects of development that are difficulties from infancy onwards, and then what does that mean in terms of learning outcomes? And that information can help us to see not only what kind of cognitive abilities are related to good educational outcomes, but which ones are necessary for good outcomes. And I do a lot of that research in relationship to mathematical development. So, for example, we know that attention is very important in the early year, in, in the development for maths, for example. And what we then see is that if we look at, for example, individuals with Williams syndrome, They have problems with moving their eyes around, so we call that sticky fixation. They find it really difficult to disengage once they're looking at a particular thing. Whereas infants with Down syndrome have problems with sustained attention, so kind of remaining on track. And so what we've done in our research is then looking or examining around what does that mean in terms of mathematical development. And so we can relate the uh, difficulty with sustained attention that individuals with Down syndrome have to, for example, the fact that they have problems with one-to-one correspondence, counting items and keeping track of those, and then how that relates to their further mathematical development. Whereas in Williams syndrome, we can see how this, the fact that they don't really move their eyes enough impacts on their understanding of magnitudes and larger quantities and again how that relates to their further mathematical outcomes. So it seems to me that from what you've just said it's really important that when we're trying to support children with learning difficulties that we really tailor their experiences to their strengths and weaknesses rather than just taking a you know, a whole system or like a whole, like one size fits all approach, that's just not going to work with children that, you know, have different cognitive profiles and different, you know, areas of strengths and weaknesses. 
Absolutely. I think there's still a little bit more research to be done in that area. I think most practitioners and parents don't need to be convinced that any child is an individual and that there's lots of individual differences. But it is really important that we get an understanding of what works for what groups of children, not only groups that have a label, but also within those groups, there might be subgroups, for example, there might be certain children that benefit from one particular approach more than another. And that's really what in my research, what I'm really looking at is, you know, what works for which children and why would that be the case? But also, I think um, working with children with developmental disorders and special educational needs because of their complex developmental pathways, it actually also informs us around theories of developmental psychology in general and about learning in typically developing children as well. So essentially your work helps everybody. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a big claim, Nora. You know, I, I think it's interesting that you say that because I often get the question of, you know, why do you work with these kind of rare genetic syndromes where, you know, you've got small sample sizes and what is that research really going to say? But, you know, I've got big aspirations. There we go. Excellent. Well, your passion really is shining through. So that's really great to hear. So just touching again on children with special educational needs and, you know, neurodiversity, what are the common misconceptions surrounding their needs? Yeah, so we've just finished some research around what people call neuromyths. So these are kind of incorrect beliefs people may hold about the brain and more more larger also development. And there have been a number of studies that had looked already around the beliefs people might hold, the neuromyths people might have about the brain in typically developing children. But actually, there wasn't much known yet around what are the kind of incorrect beliefs and endorsements in terms of neuromyths related to developmental disorders. And that's something we've just done in one of our studies. And we had a large survey. And actually, what we found in that uh, survey is that both people who work within education as well as those who do not work in education so what we call you know the general public or lay audience if you if you were that they endorsed fewer neuromyths about the brain in general so thinking around you know do we only use 10% of our brain you know which in the past was often endorsed but we didn't find that anymore but what we did find was that a larger proportion of neuromyths were endorsed when these neuromyths related to developmental disorders and actually it wasn't that it was one particular group or another you know there's still a lot of neuromyths endorsed around developmental disorders and special educational needs so for example thinking about a number of people endorsed the view that dyslexia might be caused by visual stress for example and so uh, would endorse that and visual overlay may therefore help children with dyslexia or that children with dyslexia because of this visual stress difficulty might have letter reversals and confuse B versus D. However, the research has shown that actually dyslexia is not caused by visual stress per se and that actually typically developing children also make letter reversals. So, you know, this is an assertion you know, it's not because a child makes letter reversals that they necessarily will have dyslexia, because you can also have a child with dyslexia who wouldn't be showing these letter reversals. So there are a number of them. There were a few neuromyths related to dyslexia, but also we looked at neuromyths related to autism, you know, the idea that autistic children don't like to be touched, or autistic children have no need, uh, you know, they don't get lonely, 
for example. They have no need for social contact. And as well as looking at, you know, neuromyths related to intellectual disabilities. So, you know, kind of what can we expect that children with intellectual disabilities can reach, you know, should they remain in mainstream education, for example. And the neuromyths that do get endorsed are things like, you know, children with intellectual disabilities cannot learn anything complex. And then finally, we also looked at ADHD, where a common neuromyth is that individuals with ADHD will grow out of it as they get older. Excellent. So it sounds like you've really captured, you know, teachers, other professionals and the lay public sort of like overview and knowledge of different neuromyths. What's been the impact so far in terms of your neuroscience project and where are you hoping to take it in the future? So one of the things is, you know, around neuromyths is that if people endorse some of the neuromyths, it might lead to children getting a diagnosis or not getting a diagnosis, for example, because we know that that relates to the beliefs teachers and parents may have. It might also lead to some kind of stigma for children. And so one of the things that we're wondering about is how do the endorsements of these neuromyths can actually impact on what kind of support teachers and parents provide for children with um, developmental disorders at home. So we're actually doing two things at the moment related to the impact of that neuromyth study. One is we've launched an awareness campaign just to see whether providing people with blogs that we've written, as well as an infographic, as well as some really nice, cool video explainers, I think, explaining more about, you know, what are neurodevelopmental disorders, what's ADHD, what's dyslexia, what are the mechanisms in the brain, you know, what does it really mean to have dyslexia in terms of learning and development, with the aim then to see how we can change these neuromyths, these endorsements. And in the second stage of our project, we are looking at what works for different children with developmental disorders. And so we're hoping soon, hopefully get funding to do some more work within that area as well. Excellent. It sounds super exciting. And it's, it's great that you're, you know, you're making steps to, you know, change people's perspectives. And hopefully that will filter down to the, the kind of supports and experiences that children with special educational needs, you know, will have and hopefully raise, you know, their outcomes and give them positive experiences. So yeah, great work all around. So your work also focuses a lot on mathematical development. What do you think educators need to know when teaching maths? That's a great question, Laura. It's a, it's a difficult one because you probably know my answer to that one, seeing that we, we're working together as well. Is that, you know, mathematics is complex. You know, it's not just one thing. It's actually mathematics is from a cognitive point of view. If you look at, you know, what does a child need to know in order to be good at maths? It actually requires a lot of different things. So, yes, children need to learn, you know, the number names and the order and knowing how to count and a lot of these specific number facts and, and what we call domain specific abilities. But on top of that, children also need to rely on a lot of other cognitive functions such as attention. We know that um, you need to pay attention and also inhibit some responses if you're doing mathematical calculations, for example. But also children need very good working memory or at least the ability to hold information in mind and manipulate that information. And I think one of the other things that I find fascinating about mathematical development is how much it also relates to even motor development and links such as visual spatial abilities, again, knowing how you orientate yourself in space. 
But finally, most importantly for me is, you know, I'm always surprised on how much within mathematical development or how much in order to be good at mathematical development, how much you need to rely on your language abilities. You know, as you know, Laura, I once presented a very long list of all the different mathematical terms or all the different language concepts that actually relate to mathematical development. And so my advice for teachers would be, is first of all to look at that kind of the language that they're using and whether they kind of explain some of these concepts explicitly to children. But the other point of advice would be to also think around if a child is struggling with mathematical development, why may that be? And is that because this child may have some attention difficulties or is it because this child hasn't grasp a particular mathematical concept so is it kind of is it a math problem or is it more of a a general learning difficulty and I think that's very important because again is what we've shown in our research is that different children struggle for different reasons with mathematical development you kind of have these subgroups we already see that in preschool children that there are different groups of children And then obviously the final thing is not only that mathematical development is complex, but that we need to overcome our fear for maths. I think is so outspoken within the UK, this anxiety that relates to mathematical development that we see in very young children already, but also that we see in teachers, you know, who are teaching maths development to children. And so I think, you know, making maths fun is really important. And, you know, I hope that we can look more into, you know, how apps can help with making maths more fun, but also how parents can make maths more fun by using apps like the Maths at Home app that we're trying to develop, for example. Yeah, and really kind of give children confidence in terms of their mathematical abilities. Excellent. So essentially, I think from what you've just said, this sort of like, you know, how do we support children in learning maths? Again, there's not this, you know, one size fits all approach, but also, you know, not only do we need to be thinking about what the what the needs are of the individual child, but also the the factors surrounding the child in terms of, you know, like you say, like parental maths anxiety and our attitudes and fears towards maths. You mentioned just at the end there about the Maths at Home app and about, you know, parents and how they can support their children's maths development. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, which I think is also particularly interesting given the importance and context of the home learning environment, particularly over the last year? Yes, well, this... Actually, the Maths at Home app is a result of <laughs> what happened in the last uh, 24 months. So I think back in 2014, myself and some colleagues were doing some research around how to improve mathematical abilities in preschoolers that were particularly at risk for mathematical learning difficulties, or what we sometimes call dyscalculia. And as part of that research, we developed these kind of fun games that preschool providers could use in, in the preschool settings to improve mathematical outcomes. So when the pandemic hit, you know, I was very aware that there were parents like myself at home with very young children who were asked to kind of entertain, you know, their children, but also, you know, make these activities educational. And so together with a PhD student within the Child Development and Learning Difficulties Lab, we started to put on Twitter and on our Facebook page every week a slide that said, hey, here is something you can do about maths uh, with your preschooler at home. No tools required, very little preparation required. You know, it was all, we kind of tried to keep it very straightforward. 
And so we did that for, I can't remember how many weeks, but at least until the entire first lockdown. And we didn't run out of ideas, which was very impressive as well, that we kept coming up with these fun activities. But the feedback from parents was really positive. The only problem was by putting it on Twitter and Facebook is that parents found it difficult to kind of, again, go through previous ones or repeat things because they couldn't find always the slides. And so we were lucky to get some funding to actually then develop an app, a place where all these games could be put together and make a, I think the right word is database, or I don't know how you would say it, Laura, in terms of like a, a bank of ideas where parents can go to, if they want to do something with their child at home, to develop their child's mathematical ability. So it's targeted at the age of two to six. Um, bank of ideas, we've related blogs to it to explain to parents a little bit more about why and how some of these games may even be related to maths. And the games, I think one other strength of the games is that they not only relate to what you would do in a formal setting. So it's nothing to do with get some paper and pencil but really about, you know, you can do mats at home. You can do mats with your child in the car. You can do mats whilst you're preparing dinner. When your child is in the bath, we've got some actually really fun games from the bath. And I think that's the strength of the, the games we've put together. Excellent, Joe. I think it's really important as well, you know, thinking about maths you know, it's all around us, you know, you know, it's not just like you say, paper and pen and sitting at a desk and or reciting, you know, your times tables, like we can find maths and fun activities all around us. And, you know, maybe by taking that approach, we can create this, you know, love for maths and excitement for learning, rather than it being something that makes us feel anxious or fearful. So yeah, really exciting to see where, where those projects will go in the future. So overall, Joe, it's been really, really interesting talking with you. I think there's been some really great things that have come out, particularly in terms of the work that you've been doing in terms of trying to change people's perceptions and providing guidance of you know how best to support children, not just typically developing children, but also those with special educational needs. Thank you so much for the hard work that you've been doing. Um, and like I say, really excited to see where things go in the future. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. It was great. You can follow Jo and her colleagues on Twitter at Jo Van Havagen, and you can learn more about her research via the links in the episode notes. Enjoyed this episode and want to find more? We aren't just a one-hit wonder. We've got plenty of episodes underneath our belt waiting for you to catch up on. Search IOE Podcasts from wherever you get your podcasts and to find episodes from season 1 to 12 of Research for the Real World, as well as more podcasts from the IOE. I'm Dr Laura Uthwaite. Thank you for listening. Search for the Real World is produced by IOE Marketing and Communications and IOE Research Development. The theme music was created by Rob Cochran. Tatiana Sotero-Diaz is the series advisor. Amy Leibowitz is the series producer. And Jason Ilagin is the executive producer of the IOE podcast. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast. 